0: Welcome to Writers' Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander. This week, we're talking to Jack Davis, author most recently of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. Welcome to Writers' Forum, Jack.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Well, first off, <clears throat> we have to say congratulations. you It's just been announced this month that you won the Pulitzer Prize for this book. Thank you. He said modestly. (laughs) Well,
1: I've been getting a lot of congratulations and I still haven't figured out uh, the proper way to respond.
0: Well, I think, I think, well, yes, thank you. Well, of course I deserved it, but (laughs) I guess you can't say that.
1: I won't say that. Well,
0: I'm impressed. Um,
1: So am I.
0: (laughs) the, um, The book is about the Gulf, the making of an American sea, and you actually grew up on the gulf coast
1: i I did i grew up on the gulf in the 60s and the 70s and beyond and um first on the florida panhandle in the fort Walton beach area in santa rosa sound and then uh, my family moved down to the tampa bay area and that's where i spent most of my my years uh, junior high school and as they were called then and in high school
0: and Largo High School.
1: Lar- Largo High School. I'm a graduate of Largo High School. If there are any folks out there. Uh,
0: well, my daughter-in-law was Seminole High. So,
1: oh, okay. Um, I guess okay. they
0: were your right, right, right.
1: I had friends who went to Seminole High. My, my sister's first uh, husband was a graduate of Seminole.
0: And you, you joined the Navy straight out of school. You didn't go to college right away.
1: I did. That's correct. Uh, I actually joined the Navy before I graduated on a delayed entry program and... Uh, and then once I graduated, I had to go off. And I did that in part because I loved the sea so much, uh, having grown up on the Gulf of Mexico. And it had always been very much a part of my life. And I participated in in all the, the water sports that were uh, available then. And so I thought that the Navy was this uh, natural transition that might open up my, my world to, you know, other oceans in, in, uh, in other parts of the world.
0: Well, you eventually um, got your Ph.D. up at Brandeis. Is it okay if we just call you Jack and not Absolutely. Dr. Davis <laughs> like your students? Um, and you're a professor now at the University of Florida. And this disclaimer, I'm a Gator. I'm wearing my Gator shirt to to show As support. As we say in
1: Gainesville, go Gators. Go
0: Gators. <laughs> um, you've written or co-written or edited um, half a dozen earlier books, and I'd just like to you to discuss briefly one of them. In 2009, you published um, An Everglades Providence, and it's the story of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And I'm a big Stoneman Douglas fan, so tell us a little about that book.
1: Well, that's a really, I call it a dual biography because it's uh, both a biography of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who lived from 1890 to 1998, and uh, but also a biography of, the, of a place, of, of the Everglades, and so in that book, I'm very interested in her life as an environmentalist, but that it's not something that happened in, until later in life for her. Not really. She didn't become a full-time environmentalist until age 79. And then, as you know, didn't retire from uh, environmentalism until age 100 and then lived another eight years. But she was a lifelong um Feminist, uh, a women's rights advocate, advocate not just simply a suffragist, but she supported the very first ERA in 1923. Most suffragists did not. And she was uh, very committed all of her life to, to social justice uh, I- as well. So she was, and I in the book, I'm very interested in the, the various moments in her life that, that interconnect with, with the Everglades as a writer and primarily and as an activist.
0: Well, I was mentioning just a few minutes ago, <clears throat> before we started talking on the air, that I did my very first job. I was at a TV station, and I made a documentary with her, and I just, she's just a hero of mine, or I guess I should say heroine. And I noticed that you wrote a letter um, to a newspaper after the uh, unfortunate, tragic shooting at that high school, and you said, you know, Marjorie, St- the school was named after her in Florida. And you said she would be proud of the kids, the way they responded to the tragedy.
1: Yes, that, that's right. When that, I after the tragedy um, became news, my email uh, inbox started pinging people writing to talk, you know, obviously uh, talk about the, the tragedy, how horrific it was in itself, but also worried about this um, being a blemish on her, her name. And I got to thinking about that and I thought, well, maybe not something that doesn't seem right. And then the, the young people at that school rose up uh, and organized in protest against the, the lax gun, gun, gun control laws in, in, in the country. And then it occurred to me that she's the perfect legacy. She's the name that should be on that side of that building rather than another high school uh, named after a dead Confederate uh, hero or or an Indian fighter. And uh, that they were carrying on in in her tradition and, and uh, exhibiting their uh, commitment to social justice uh, that that she was committed to all of her life.
0: Well, um, sure. Um, and you also edited some of her works—a little volume of some of her. Was it poetry that she? It's
1: wrote? poetry, and it was from her <coughs> newspaper columns that she wrote for the Miami Herald from 1920 to 1923, and she composed a lot of poetry, which she always referred to as doggerel but uh, much of it is very uh, much of it's wonderful and she she would she wrote this column and commenting on now here's what i love about her and i'm sure you do do too is that she was supposed to uh, uh, this column was supposed to be committed to women's issues to book reviews to to poetry uh, just a light social local social issues but she wrote on um, anything she wanted to write on and she was very well read she wrote on politics she wrote on uh, uh, on Prohibition, which she was adamantly opposed to, uh, and, uh, and she spoke her mind. And so I collected uh, more of the interesting um, uh, entries in her column over the years in in this book called, titled The Wide Brim, which is a reference to the type of hats she used to wear uh, late in life.
0: She was just so charming. Um well, the book, I mean, you're here, obviously, to talk about the big one because the Pulitzer Prize doesn't come along that often. Um, and the book is just wonderful. And it's written more like a, what we call a trade book. It's not really written like an academic book for professors and historians. And, but of course, it's incredibly, um, you know, uh, annotated and and so on I don't mean to say that I'm just saying you can sit and read it and it's enjoyable <laughs> to to read it's a pleasure to read the book um I was happily surprised because when I heard that you had written a 500 page book that I was going to I only had 3 days to read it and I thought oh my goodness but I loved it It took you what seven years to approximately
1: yes. Uh, I had conceived the idea of the book before the BP oil spill, and so early in 2010, and then the oil spill happened, and we all suffered through that 87 day nightmare of the summer uh, of 2010. And before the uh, the oil spill, I wasn't sure quite how to approach. The subject of the the Gulf of Mexico, a history of the Gulf of Mexico, but the oil spill gave me my objective because I believe that it took a lot from the Gulf, uh, obviously fish and birds, but it also, uh, from my perspective, it, it it took the Gulf's identity, true identity, away, uh, and it was redefined. It's been redefined ever since. as more or less an oil sump or a sunning beach, and I knew the Gulf was much more than that, and I so I wanted to restore. Uh, the gulf's identity and but also the gulf of mexico is just not included in uh, the history textbooks and uh, the traditional the conventional american historical narrative you can go to any college or high school history textbook american history textbook and check the index and there's a good chance you will not find the gulf of mexico listed and if you do it's only mentioned in a couple of places mentioned in passing uh, and so this is a story that needed to be uh, be, be told. And having grown up on the Gulf, it seemed like an ideal uh, subject for me to write. And you're you're correct to say it's. I did not write this book for academics. They were my, my colleagues were never on my mind as my audience. Uh, it was very much a general readership because uh, I wanted readers to know that Americans all all Americans have this connection to the Gulf of Mexico, whether they live beside it or, or vacation on it or not.
0: Now, why did you call it the American Sea, the making of an American Sea? Tell us about that.
1: Well, I call it the making of American Sea uh, for one reason. I, so the book covers the period from the, the geographic formation to the present, but focusing on the uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And I knew that uh, I decided I wanted to focus on the five U.S. states and because I knew my audience would be American readers primarily. And I call it the making of the American Sea because um, I I, I believe that, um, well, first of all, the United States occupies uh, half of the uh, coastline in the Gulf, uh, sharing the other half with Mexico and Cuba. And uh, but um, uh, American affairs really dominate or have since the 19th century uh, dominate uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico and the human relationship with the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and but there and so there's there are these historical American historical connections with the Gulf that uh, I I discuss in the book. But there are also ecological connect, connections. If you the, the Gulf of Mexico is one of the richest estuarine environments in the world, and what do you need for an, for an estuary? You need a mix of salt and fresh water. And where does the fresh water come come from? It comes from rivers and streams and other 116 rivers that flow to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, 69 uh, come out of the five U.S. states, yet 85% of the fresh water that reaches the Gulf of Mexico comes out of the five U.S. states. And so as a consequence, that estuarine environment is really concentrated uh, primarily up uh, around those five U.S. states.
0: And, And what makes it a gulf rather than an ocean or a sea or whatever? geographers (laughs)
1: geographers <laughs> um, there there are no hard and fast rules but it's generally determined whether you're sea, an ocean a gulf or bay uh is generally determined by size and of course um as as there is an um wherever there are rules there there are rule breakers and if the hudson bay for instance is is larger than every gulf uh in the world with the exception of the gulf of mexico which is the the ninth or tenth largest uh, uh, saltwater body uh, on the planet, depending on, on who's doing the measuring. So it's really size. So you have ocean, you have sea, then you have Gulf, and then you have bay. And then you have bayous and sa- sounds and so forth. And
0: isn't a Gulf, I think you said, connected to a um, an ocean somehow? It has some kind of...
1: Yes, Gulfs are connected to an ocean. And of course, um, the, the Gulf of Mexico is connected uh, through the Florida Straits and the Yucatan um, uh, channel uh, to the Caribbean and the the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and geographers uh, consider the Gulf of Mexico as a part of the Atlantic Ocean, which I think is unfair because the Gulf of Mexico is older than the Atlantic Ocean, and it's and it's different uh, ecologically and culturally. And um, I so I think it's it's a bit of a ripoff uh, to consider the Gulf of Mexico as a mere appendage to the the Atlantic.
0: We do, too. <laughs> we're <laughs> prejudiced around here. Now, obviously, you talk about the gulf from the beginning and 500 pages up until the current time. We can't touch on everything. But let's talk a little bit about, since we're, you're in New Orleans and we're celebrating our 300th birthday of um, the European arrival, I guess you'd say, uh, would you just mention um, Iberville and Bienville? Just for the sake of our birthday celebration. Sure.
1: Um, well, um, imberville is is really the responsible or is the European discoverer of the mouth of the of the Mississippi River. And the French had sailed down from the northern part of the continent uh, down to uh, down to the end of, to to the mouth of the Mississippi River. and but then they knew they needed to get access from the Gulf side. Um, because they wanted to be able to to ship their furs uh, from the northern part of the continent down to the Gulf of Mexico uh, and then uh, across the Atlantic to to France of course and the French had a heck of a time trying to find the mouth of the um, the Mississippi River and uh, Iberville was the the one who did it uh, in the 18th century and uh, after passing it Uh, a a number of times. Uh, He finally did discover it. Um, And and of course, uh, once they um, found the mouth of the Mississippi River, they wanted to control the Mississippi River. They wanted to keep the British out. Soon after they discovered the Mississippi River, uh, it shocked them because uh, a a British uh, ship showed up uh, uh, several miles up the river. Uh, here it took the the French forever to find uh, the Mississippi, and somehow the, the the British wandered in, and so the French chased them off, and then they need to needed to establish some sort of settlement along the river uh, to keep other trespassers out, uh, and and of course that is the origins of the, of New Orleans.
0: Well, we just had to get that in. Um, sure. Also, I'm being provincial here. I've lived half my life in Florida, just about, and half my life in New Orleans. So. <clears throat> I just loved reading your book because it was about every place it was getting me all excited that I knew the places. And one place that we enjoyed talking about around here is um, Avery Island and the McElhinneys. Tell us about that and and the birds, what happened with the egrets.
1: Well, as I was writing this book, I was doing a lot of the research as I, w- I was writing, and there were often surprises that, that popped up, um, which made it just... Uh, so, uh, a labor of love to write. Uh, it was so easy to get up in the morning and, and sit down and begin writing because I expected these surprises. And one was the relevance of Avery Island and Edward McElhaney, who's the son of the, of the uh, creator of, uh, of course, Tabasco sauce, um, and, which was uh, invented, if you will, in the 1880s. And uh, Edward McElhaney eventually took over the, the, the company in the late 19th century, right around the turn of the century, and turned Tabasco um, sauce into the product and the company that we know today, more or less. But he had this passion for birds because Avery Island uh, on the coast of Louisiana was populated by hundreds, if not thousands, of of wading birds, in particular snowy egrets. But then they started disappearing in the late 19th century, and this disturbed um, uh, Ed or Ned, and he um, uh, and he soon learned that it was because hunters, commercial hunters, uh, were shooting them for the hat fashion industry in those days. Feathered hats millions, for all millions, millions, millions around the globe, and, and around the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the Gulf of Mexico was a favored uh, hunting ground of these commercial uh, uh, um, hunters because. Uh, there were so many of the birds here, and and the the plume, uh, the plumage, or the mating plumage of a snowy egret, uh, could uh, earn them the the price of gold, uh, and uh, and so they were uh, they were probably wiped out by ninety percent uh, around the the Gulf of Mexico, and McElhaney uh, wanted to do something about this, so he established. Uh, one of the earliest, if not the earliest bird sanctuaries in the United States on Avery Island. And it was a huge success. It helped bring back uh, uh, at least the local um, snowy egret population. But as others were uh, trying to establish bird sanctuaries, they consulted with him. And he was an amateur ornithologist, but hugely famous and wrote several articles.
0: Well, we can talk about him all day um, if we have the time. Yeah, oh,
1: you absolutely could, (laughs) couldn't
0: you? (laughs) I would love to. He was also
1: a a polar explorer, as
0: you know. Uh, And we won't mention the nutria because we don't have time to go into that. (laughs) But you segue from that into a little discussion of oil and just a little throwaway line that I just had no idea. Oil doesn't really come from dinosaurs. (laughs) God is my witness! I thought that oil came from the dinosaurs.
1: Right? No, it, it doesn't, um, and it's a much more complex origin and uh, origin and older, and than than the dinosaurs. But it is for many years it was a in an, uh, an industry myth, and, and it was a way to uh, associate the industry with uh, with a favored species, if if you will, and uh, to make the uh, the The industry and, and the consumption of oil uh, a little bit more palatable.
0: Well, now you give us the whole history, I mean, of the Gulf and the oil and something like you said around uh, World War I, 70% of um, U.S. petroleum came from the um, Gulf area, Gulf oil, Mobile, Tex- uh, Texaco. And we really, again, can't do justice to what you Spend several chapters on. You don't just talk about the um, Deepwater Horizon spill, although you, of course, lead up to that. But um, you give us a really good idea of of the role oil has played in the development of the Gulf, what it's done, both positive and negative, to the Gulf. And <laughs> my favorite. When I moved here, I couldn't get over the Louisiana Shrimp and Petroleum Festival. I mean, the the name, I guess other people that lived here, their whole lives were used to it, but it just seemed so (laughs) incongruous to have a shrimp and petroleum festival. But you give so much good background of um, how the oil companies um, present themselves, uh, how much attention or how little attention we were paying for a long, long time to oil spills, which really are a huge issue. Until 2010, we just, we didn't seem to pay as much attention as we should have.
1: Well, in the early days, uh, of course, in the early 20th century, uh, um, oil spill wasn't even part of the vocabulary. They were called gushers and they were celebrated um, because... uh, this was this was black gold, um, and it meant riches for a lot for a lot of people.
0: Now you also um, talk about um, hurricanes. You have to talk about hurricanes if you're talking about the Gulf. And again, you don't concentrate on the late unpleasantness, as I call 2005's um, uh, Katrina here and Rita, but you show us again what hurricanes have done in the history of the Gulf and how it's affected um, everything that's gone on ever since. And I guess we're, we don't have much time left. We'll have to kind of skip to the regretfully to the more modern times. You start talking about the dead zones and problems caused uh, the loss of our wetlands.
1: Yes. there's huge loss of uh, particularly Louisiana's wetlands, um, not only because of the the dead zone, uh, but but primarily uh, what comes down the Mississippi River, um, uh, primarily agricultural runoff from the from the Midwest, but uh, but also ten thousand miles of of oil industry canals uh, cut through the, the the coastline. But the dead zone dead zone reaches the the size of the. Uh, state of Delaware in some summers, uh, even the s- a size of a size of, C- of Connecticut, and uh, and again, agricultural runoff from the Midwest is responsible for that. But I made I want to say real quick, I make in the book this connection between the origins of the the dead zone in the nineteen fifties with a baby boom era Saturday morning cartoon commercials. And if you want to know that connection, you'll have to read the book. <laughs>
0: Well, being a boomer, I especially enjoyed <clears throat> that part of it, um, but you do talk about the the water spill and the fact that <clears throat> even though some companies seem to think that um, the rigs make good artificial reefs, there's certain <laughs> negative aspects of those um, rigs. Uh,
1: Yes, I wouldn't. I would not eat fish caught around an oil rig because the water is still contaminated. And yes, it might attract uh, fish. And, and 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 a a structure like a rig out in the Gulf would be a very good uh, artificial reef, uh, but not one that's that has uh, pumped gas or oil.
0: With the few minutes we have left, you point out toward the end of your book <clears throat> some of the. Um people who have worked hard to try to save the Gulf, as it were, and some of the overwhelming problems. Are are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I'm, I'm,
1: uh, I, I try to be, I want to be optimistic because since the 1970s, we've brought a lot of bays and bayous back to life that were nearly dead and we've been able to uh, propagate uh, the regrowth of, of seagrasses that were wiped out by Largely by uh, uh, raw sewage, uh, dumping raw sewage from "quote unquote" treatment plants, and so we have the capacity uh, to uh, uh, restore uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico to to a vital sea. Um, and if if we have the will, the political will, uh, and, and of course the, uh, the the moral and human will to, to do so, uh, we we can we can.
0: Now, when we fly home. Or take off from New Orleans, but especially when we're coming home, <clears throat> it looks really brown down there.
1: Well, um, it should, um, and but sometimes it's brown in the wrong places because even even if the Mississippi, even if there were no nutrients, no industrial waste running down the Mississippi, it would be brown because of the uh, the uh, tonnage of sediment uh, that flows down from the Midwest. The reason why you guys have probably, I'm sorry to say, the ugliest beaches on the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you guys meaning Louisiana, is because have you ever seen a plowed field field in Iowa? Well, that's a future beach um, because that sediment runs down the Mississippi River and always has, and it needs to because that's what replenishes uh, the coast of Louisiana.
0: Well, I just think your book is marvelous. You've won all kinds of awards for this book and for all your books, but I mean, crowning jewel. um, I wish you luck at your... um, uh,
1: My next book is on uh, a natural and cultural history of the bald eagle, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, Bird of Paradox, How the Bald Eagle Saved the Soul of America.
0: Oh my goodness, I can't wait. Well, the New York Times was describing your book when it first came out long before any talk of the Pulitzer. It said, Davis has written a beautiful homage to a neglected sea, a lyrical peon to its remaining estuaries and marshes, and a marvelous mashup of human and environmental history. You've been listening to Writers Forum. We want to thank our guests this week, the Pulitzer Prize winning Jack Davis, author most recently of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.